truckload of art from New York City came rolling down the road while the driver was singing and sunset was pretty but the truck turned over and she rolled off the road Hi Camille, how's it going? It's going well. We're in the studio. It's a beautiful day out. The sky is white. We're laying down some tracks. Yeah. Some vocal tracks. It's cold in the room. I'm enjoying the honey cinnamon latte you brought me. It's very good. It's warming me up. Good. It's a good day. We're we're feeling social and chatty. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we intended to start this two hours ago, but you know, life life gets in the way. I want to read the poem. Yeah, you should go ahead and read the poem. Okay. The world turns and the world changes, but one thing does not change. In all of my years, one thing does not change. However you disguise it, the thing does not change. The perpetual struggle of good and evil. Forgetful, you neglect your shrines and churches. The men you are in these times deride. What has been done of good, you find explanations to satisfy the rational and enlightened mind. Second, you neglect and belittle the desert. The desert is not remote in southern tropics. The desert is not only around the corner. The desert is squeezed into the tube train next to you. The desert is in the heart of your brother. The good man is the builder if he build what is good. I will show you the things that are now being done, and some of the things that were long ago done, that you may take heart, make perfect your will, let me show you the work of the humble, listen." That was a, a an excerpt from T.S. Eliot's play, The Rock. Beautiful. Well, it's uh, it's good to see you, Camille. Um, yes. We're doing a very exciting episode today that was sort of born very quickly um, because we were talking about it on, on something else. And on just, that alumni. Yeah, we just had so much to say that... Um, we wanted to expand it into a full-length episode. Yeah, uh, we're we're kind of going to be diving deep into, a, you know, a more expansive part of our great state. Uh, we're we're going west. Yeah, and we're excited to take this journey with you. So, Faith, do tell me, what is your connection to West Texas? Well, in my my earlier years. Um, when I was a teenager, I sort of learned about it through different media. Um, I was a big Mountain Goats fan, you know. Mm. They have an album called All Hail West Texas, so that sort of intrigued me. And then... Um, I never got into them. Well, you know, that's that's okay. <laughs> okay. Um, they've, they've had their time, and it was a beautiful moment in history. Um, <laughs> in 2016, the XX, who I'm sure you're familiar <laughs> with... I, we've re-recorded this, and, I, and I'm insistent on saying this every time, but the XX released a music video with famous Tumblr model Allie Michael cheerleading on the Marfa High School cheerleading team. It is a captivating music video. Right. And I, I remember watching that and thinking, okay, there's something to this. Like, there, there are things out west. I had sort of like a, an ancient, um, I don't know, like a fundamental American yearning um for tumbleweeds and open highways and I realized that you know there was something out there that I had not yet accessed that existed for art and was remote 
and it was very fascinating to me at the time because I was a, a young artist trying to understand where I fit into the world. Yeah, you know, you see you see hot teens making out in a in a music video and uh something about that beckons beckons the young the young artist soul. Um so yeah, I, I first went out there I think in twenty eighteen. Um and I I have very confusing conflicting feelings towards marfa and west texas in general but it's a place i care deeply about and i I, yeah yeah um yeah so so this episode is kind of going to be exploring the the mythology of west texas in general specifically kind of the history of martha as an artist's enclave as a place that people kind of have pilgrimage to um I, I guess my my first introduction was kind of, you know, in, in the 2012 realm when I started seeing people post pictures of themselves in front of Prada Marfa on Instagram. I think there was a famous Beyonce uh, photo where she was dressed in like an, a bright yellow indie sleaze peplum. Yeah, she was like eating burritos at food trucks. And, yeah. yeah, sunglasses, I think like some cool older kids that I knew who had premature driver's licenses uh, followed suit and I was kind of you know it was put on the map as like a is like there's oh there's stuff out there uh, Mm -hmm. in a place where I previously thought you know it was just like tumbleweeds and barren barrenness Um, but I haven't I haven't spent too much time there as an adult it's been mostly in a transient capacity we did have a a girl's trip not not long ago where I got to kind of experience the desert in a more earnest way. Yeah, the, the Marfa lights too are a huge part of why everything is sort of mythologized. Um, I think, you know, a lot of cities tend to have strange little um, supernatural experiences like that, but I think because Marfa is so remote, it has sort of become something more definitive of the area itself than it normally would be yeah i i was like trying to dig in more to the marfa lights um having never seen them myself and i thought the way that they described it on the the town website was kind of amusing and they said ranchers native americans high school sweethearts and famous meteorologists alike have all reported seeing seemingly sourceless lights dance on the horizon southeast of town an area that is nearly uninhabited and extremely difficult to traverse. Sometimes they're red, sometimes they're blue, sometimes they're white. And they usually appear randomly throughout the night, no matter the season or weather. Um, it, it starts off, it sounds like a, like a, you know, who walked into a bar joke uh, to me. But I, I just thought that was amusing. But yeah, I've never seen them. And it, and it does kind of generate uh, this sort of, it, it does put Marfa on the map as this, like, kind of mystical, alluring place to, to the outsider. Right, where people come together, too. Because that's sort of the idea about Marfa, is that it's this very quiet place where you only go if you're sort of dedicated to getting out of the, the hustle and bustle of the big city, you know? Get, getting on out of there. Yeah, my brother got married in Marathon um, in 2021. Marathon, Texas is 
sort of referred to as the the gateway to Big Bend. Um, I asked my brother, you know, just why he feels so drawn to the region. And he mentioned that because Marathon was uh, invented or what? <laughs> Uh, discovered or established in in 1882 and was sort of a big port for their Southern Pacific Railroad. It was a place that like, you know, life kind of sprung from in that region. Um, And yeah, it's, it's known as, as a gateway sort of. So it it like brings you into this other world that is so dissimilar from so many other places in Texas that we're very familiar with, um, which I found interesting. And yeah, I've, I've been out there, I go out there probably like twice a year or something. Um, and it's quite nice. I just planned my, my next trip for in a couple of weeks. And I, I just feel like such a strange sense of calm uh, that washes over me when we go. So I think that's sort of what we wanted to talk about today is just the culture there. What truly is the deal with Marfa? Um, why does it have the intrigue that it does? What are what are some of the cultural exports that have sprouted through this interesting, uh, through its developments? Yeah, and how, I, I think it's a more, it has a more lasting impact than a lot of people realize. Because I, I think Texas has been sort of in the cultural conversation recently. It's fashion and, um, I, I don't know, like the sort of small specificities of Texas life I feel like have become desirable to a lot of people sort of maybe starting in 2020 with like the the homesteading craze and people mm. wanting to move out uh, and be by themselves and I feel like that's Where there's of, more land yeah that yeah. sort of created you know girls in New York are wearing cowboy boots to to the galleries and whatnot right so yeah, I, I think that Marfa specifically has such a huge influence, um, and we're going to discuss why that is. Yeah. The only other thing I'll say on a personal note is that the last time I was in West Texas, um, Faith and I sang Tracy Chapman's Fast Car uh, in a small bar. And the bar was train-themed. The bar was train-themed, and they didn't like that we were there singing karaoke uh, <laughs> poorly because it seems like the other singers um they had chops yeah chops that we didn't have but i remember our performance being particularly spirited yeah Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) i think we want to talk a little bit about the desert itself yeah the process of going there um through the lens of baudrillard's america um and and this is the the chihuahuan desert the high the high desert the high desert so america was written or published in 1986 by baudrillard who also famously wrote you know simulacra and simulation um seduction uh this is one of many in the genre of europeans coming to america and doing cultural analysis um america kind of spans from he writes about like la he writes about new york at night um, but throughout it, it, it kind of keeps coming back to the desert, which I find really interesting. And the final chapter is called Desert Forever. Um, that chapter specifically we're pulling from a lot here. Yeah. Um, you know, Desert Forever, Friday Night Lights, Texas Forever. There's a, there's a linguistic parallel there. Yeah, the first page of America actually mentions both Texas, the Texas Hills, and San Antonio, um, which I I found very interesting. 
so the experience of going to West Texas, we begin with driving there. As we've talked about many times before on this podcast, so much of Texas culture and life is dependent on the distance and the time that it takes to get places because you can drive eight hours and still be in Texas. What Baudrillard said is of driving in America, he says it's a spectacular form of amnesia. Everything is to be discovered. Everything is also to be obliterated. Uh, and he talks about, you know, all of the faces that you see on the road, all of the things you see that you'll never see again, the way that the landscape sort of passes you by so quickly, all of these huge geological formations. You're leaving the what he calls the hyper-reality of culture, of American culture specifically. And he also talks about the cult of the body um, and how American culture is so body focus which I found interesting because that's something that I sort of feel when I go out to the desert myself is just like a like an ease of tension um and I remember when I was in marathon for my brother's wedding I was sitting in the garden with this older woman who was tending to the flowers and she was just so amazing and beautiful and peaceful and I remember talking to her and she looked at me and she said you need to move to the desert women need to move to the desert. It's the only place a woman can really breathe. In the city, men are hiding under cars and snatching women's ankles and, (laughs) and, you know. Right. And it was very strange and it felt like, I don't know, she was sort of articulating something that I was just beginning to realize, which is that things are just so much more, the like looseness of the atmosphere sort of just gives you like a spiritual, um, I don't know, neutrality or something, which, which Baudrillard also talks about. Yeah. She seems to embody this like divine desert hag that, you know, when, when they're telling, when they're advising you, it it feels like it's pertinent to listen to what they're saying. Yeah. No, she was like a, a desert goddess off of a tarot card or something. She was beautiful tending to her flowers among, uh, against like the, the backdrop of the huge Texas sky, the contours of the land. It was, it was amazing. Um, and the neutrality, the horizontality, I think, of, of driving there is sort of when you are there in general, when you when you fully arrive and you get out of your car, there's like a zoom out moment, I feel, when you sort of find yourself in the middle of this landscape. Um, at one point, Baudrillard says, why is the desert so fascinating? A brilliant, mobile, superficial neutrality, a challenge to meaning and profundity, a challenge to nature and culture, an outer hyperspace with no origin, no reference points. In this environment, we're being drawn in by what might be defined sort of only by its absence. And it's this sort of static, unyielding land that neither welcomes nor repels you. It's harder to be self-referential or for the entirety of your life to sort of seep into every conscious action as it often does when you're weighed down by the, the tightness of the city. Um. Another reason that the desert might have this pull is that it sort of creates an illusion of of ephemerality, um, of unrootedness for the outsider. Baudrillard says, The towns of the desert end abruptly. They have no surround, and they have about them something of a mirage which may vanish at any instant. I think there's a spiritual aspect of this um, on the journey away from referentiality and into the expanse. Baudrillard even says that the heat can even be uh, metaphysical. It can affect your mind. But there's a truth to this too um, that I think is interesting. Uh, With changing industry, a lot of desert towns do end abruptly. 
they vacate, they become ghost towns, they get blown away with the West Texas wind, and you feel like maybe you could too. There's definitely an appeal there. Yeah, and like with the wind, you get sort of taken by the way that the air moves and the way the light plays at different points in the day. Um, And he opens the desert chapter by talking about the sunsets. He says that they're giant rainbows lasting for an hour. And you look out, and the entirety of the landscape is being affected by the time of the, the day. And the sand that was once sort of beige and dull is now golden and very charged with light. And everything feels pink and like it's slowly descending upon you. Um, yeah, time just works differently in the desert. And I think that my favorite thing that Baudrillard wrote on this was that the days of the desert seem to mimic the year and that in the morning it's cool like spring, in the midday it's hot like summer, and at night it's cold like winter. Uh, and he describes it as a type of grace. This reminded me of something that Anne Carson writes in the Glass essay, that the hardest thing about losing a lover is watching the year repeat its days. Later, she says, she can feel that other day running under this one like an old videotape. And I'm sort of wondering if this is where the specific desolate type of nostalgia comes from, because time is running very quickly through the day, but everything else on the land feels unchanging. And you become sort of, in a way, nostalgic for things you can't even remember or like you're reliving something that you don't remember experiencing in the first place but maybe this time you have a little bit more control over its eternity um it sort of feels like you become an unwritten version of yourself in a very natasha beddingfield way um yeah yeah he writes about the lonely feeling of a tv on in an empty room how it's addressed to no one it made me think of the only time I ever stayed in Marfa by myself. I slept in a very strange, dilapidated warehouse with a bed in the dead center of the room, touching no walls. Um, the last guest had left Lone Stars and Tuna in the fridge for me, which felt incredibly specific and, and pointed. Um, and the owner left the local radio on for me. And I remember like approaching the building and hearing the radio playing from inside and feeling like maybe there was already someone in there and like I was intruding on something. Uh, But I entered it and it was just this radio playing old folk songs or every couple of days it would play an Elliott Smith song or something like that. (laughs) Um, And I, I immediately fell ill. And so I just laid in bed and that bed in the center of the room, uh, there was a holographic image of Jesus on the wall where if I moved slightly to the left, he would wink at me. So I just laid in bed and looked at Jesus and listened to old folk songs on the radio for days. And it felt like I had been there my whole life. Yeah, I mean, that seems like a condition that somebody in a previous century would be relegated to. Like Uh, dust-induced psychosis and religious fervor looking at images of Jesus on the wall. Yeah, you were bleeding through through time and space in that bed. The only thing that could heal me was like Angel in the Snow and Marty Robbins. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. Um, ra- wrapping up the the Baudrillard conversation um, and what sort of uh, you know why people are attracted to this sort of landscape. Um, I think it's also important to note that there's a caveat with with the desert where it's deceptive to those who it attracts. Baudrillard says it's unbearable while one is still alive to pass beyond the difficulty of being into the desert landscape. You know, once you arrive, you, you know, you, you might think that you can blow away with the wind, but you can't fully escape into the landscape yourself, even if that promise is what initially enticed you. 
And maybe that's one of the cruelest things about it. Um, another thing I wanted to say is when you brought up the Ann Carson poem, it reminded me of the David Berman poem that I reread recently, Governors of um, Salmon X, where he's like, there were no new ways to understand the world, only new days to set our understandings against. Through the lanes came virgins in tennis shoes, their hair shining like videotape, singing us into a kind of sleep we hadn't tried yet. Each page was a new chance to understand the last, and somehow the sea was always there to make you feel stupid. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think the same sort of romantic nostalgia persists. Uh, the girl's hair like videotape, like an old home movie, bleeding through time in a hazy natural environment. Except in this instance, the sea and not the desert is the intoxicating, expansive landscape that influences your conception of time and memory. So we've talked a bit about the desert itself and what draws people to that sort of landscape, what kind of lays the foundations for how people conceive of these sorts of places um, in the West. Um, but now I want to talk a little bit about some of the media uh, that has surrounded West Texas, specifically Marfa. And if you've never been there or to West Texas in general, you likely have some sort of understanding of it. There's a rich mythology, uh, you know, Beyonce, Prada Marfa Instagram posts, and notably 1956's Giant, which was shot in Marfa and depicted the changing cattle industry and the oil boom. It shows the West Texas desert as an unruly and expansive place, full of possibility and problems, and plants a young Elizabeth Taylor there and honestly some of the most gorgeous outfits I've ever seen. Uh, there's also a vast musical tradition that you've you're likely familiar with. Um, Marty Robbins singing about Mexican maidens in El Paso, Bob Wills, Merle Haggard, George Strait's West Texas Town, Flaco Jimenez covering the same song, the twangy and meandering work of Terry Allen, Lubbock on Everything is a personal favorite, um, and I think that's actually a very relevant example because it shares an inner conflict with you know, a lot of the ideas moving around Marfa today. Alan is a contemporary artist from Lubbock whose work charts a similar sense of identity. You know, there's also a bunch of contemporary alternative country artists who wear wide-brimmed hats that have albums like the Marfa tapes. I don't know. I think like Krong Bin seems like a yeah that sort like of vibe to me. Toro y Moi did like a like a big setup in the desert or something. Yeah, he wore a beanie. Oh, this feels like a good Presumably. time to mention something that we we um were talking about earlier just among ourselves when Jared Leto went to the <laughs> desert, <laughs> went to the like a silent retreat in the desert, um, and then God. COVID hit America and came. He came out and was like. It was like entering into a zombie apocalypse. I was so peaceful. I feel like that that sort of got, you know, the desert on a, a national conversation level. Yeah. Is it a place to escape into to avoid, uh, you know, disease and cancellation, and, you know, things of that nature? Uh, but yeah, there's a Jared Leto definitely has the aesthetic vibe of some of the, the characters that are the long haired, like biblical and yeah G jesus jesus aura um 
Yeah. Also more recently, and I think this is kind of interesting, um, the I Love Dick series that came out in 2016, the same year that the Ally Michael XX video did. The series is based on the book by Chris Krauss, and the book is sort of an epistolary autofiction about a psychosexual obsessive coastal elite affair uh, or an imagined affair. And Chris Krauss describes her work as lonely girl phenomenology, which I think is awesome. So true. And uh, interestingly, the guy she married, she was married to in real life at the time she wrote that, um, I, I Lottinger, I can't pronounce his name. Um, he is a longtime collaborator with Baudrillard. Um, they've worked on a lot of stuff together, mm. so it's an interesting connection. But anyway, I think. I think it's relevant that the producers of the series decided to set the show in Marfa, even though that's not where the book is set. They, and they made the media theorist in the text a dusty, mezcal-swilling, well-fitted Levi-wearing contemporary artist concerned with how the West Texas light plays on the clean lines of his sculpture. He sort of embodies the platonic ideal of what we've t called the minimalist cowboy, which is a Marfa export that we'll talk more about later. Yeah, I don't know. In the court of public opinion, Faith, I think there's, people seem to think there's something sexy and stripped down about the West Texas desert fantasy. Um, I think it's, I think it's interesting. A neutral cowboy waiting for you in the middle of the desert um, who wants nothing but to produce art and, yeah, and love. It's what every 50-year-old art director who wears a bold red lip and yeah. a blazer. Well, the thing about the minimalist cowboy wants. is it might not even be a marfa export but a marfa import like mm. the marfa that's true there are you know real cowboys living out there but then you have the minimalist cowboy moving in and i don't know yeah, wearing his wearing the the skin of the real cowboy in uh important in different ways right wearing like vintage belt buckles that he bought at a an art fair tacovas that are hundreds of dollars and, yeah um you know, dipping into his, his like solar pool. But I th I think the like erotic aspect or like the, the, the kind of like romantic uh, fascination with Martha, with Martha, <laughs> Martha uh, is interesting. And maybe this quote from Edward, God, Edward <laughs> Abbey's desert solitaire might uh, be illuminating when it comes to love in the desert. He says, the extreme clarity of the desert light is equaled by the extreme individuation of desert life forms. Love flowers best in openness and freedom. Yeah, maybe there's something to that. Maybe the desolation breeds intimacy. Um, as we mentioned, as Baudrillard said, the desert is alluring in part because it's a challenge to meaning and profundity, a challenge to nature and culture, which, I don't know, pretty erotic. I feel like this is a good time to sort of get into Donald Judd, who is definitely the most prominent artist to sort of um, help form Marfa, I guess. Yeah. He was an artist. His interactions with art spanned a lot of different forms and disciplines. Some of his earlier stuff uh, existed as like expressionist paintings. He was also an art critic, an art critic for hire. Um, and what he's mostly known for are his large three-dimensional installation pieces that have built the foundation for the contemporary iteration of Marfa's art scene. Um, and his art was very minimal visually, but he sort of denied the label of being a minimalist. 
yeah, his, his art sort of interacted with itself and its environment in a way that felt like it extended beyond just the movements of sculpture and minimalism. Um, and in 1965, Judd's piece, Specific Objects, was published, where he lays out the type of thinking that served as the foundation for the art pieces he's best known for, and then I think also sort of relates back to what Camille was talking about um, with artists and their, their sort of... Um, fantasy of the desert why they feel that the desert is the best sort of canvas for their art so specific objects was a commentary on the limits of the predetermined forms like painting and sculpture things that have sets of definite and shared qualities as well as a shared history of art pieces that can be interpreted through this lens and he's writing this at a time where some of the predominant artists were people like Andy Warhol or Lichtenstein or end-of-life Picasso, who was creating these very bright paintings or some like dolor etchings, um, Man Ray Duchamp, etc. And he's very semantic in his approach to art criticism. He's debating terms and movements, denying certain labels and presuppositions about his art and the form that it takes. And the most uh, important and prominent thing that he does in this essay, at least for uh, our purpose today, is... He sets up the essay with the use of three dimensions or three-dimensional work as the new form, not as a movement or a definite style. He says, movements do no longer work, also linear history has unraveled somewhat, which when you think about that, linear history unraveling, that certainly, uh, I think, relates back to a lot of what Baudrillard thinks about history and just the way that it's effectively not real, it's all simulation. Um Judd writes that the idea of three-dimensional work shares common aspects with already existing forms, but does not have the history it would require to retroactively determine some sort of underlying principle to the limitations of the medium. So he writes of it as an alternative, something that moves away from these sort of defined forms and moves into an open, extended form that includes environmental usage of what he calls objects rather than sculptures. Um, and I think, yeah, when thinking about Judd's presence in Marfa that's sort of the most important thing is that open extended idea the environmental usage um, I need to read more into this but I would assume that the usage of the materials that he was interested in like uh, concrete or metal beams were bred out of a, a post-war surplus because he refers several times in the essay to art before 1946 so you get a sense that what he's talking about is the post-war industry and the way it lent itself to more commonly accessible usage of largely commercial and architectural materials, which is also very important when you're talking about Marfa because so much of it was built on um, military bases. Uh, the Chinati headquarters specifically was was built on Fort D.A. Russell, which uh, was an active military base at one point during World War II. So in terms of where Judd was sort of where his head was at um, at the point when he was kind of departing uh, New York and the heart of the the art scene. Um, I think this piece of writing in his work, Complaints, kind of illuminates his vision and how, you know, the, the ways in which he was dissatisfied with how things were operating. He writes, there should be several sources of interest and money. The museum should be independent, responsible, and useful. There should be an artist organization to object to abuses and to support artists who aren't being given a chance. The various governments should support art. Um, and there was one quote um, by somebody, I, I forget exactly who said it, but it was 
uh, somebody who was living in Marfa at the time that he was kind of uh, starting things with Chinati. Um, and he was describing, uh, you know, how Judd sort of conceived of, uh, you know, the whole operation. He said, he thought that making an arts-based cultural tourism was necessarily carnivalesque, which was for him anathema to the experience of art. He explains, he knew that people would come see it, but he did not want that to be a large part of the economy because he thought socially that would have a negative impact. So I think that's really interesting, um, especially as we uh, kind of look at how Marfa has progressed um, and how some of the players have uh, kind of taken a different approach. Yeah, so Judd was interested in Marfa for the landscape that it could provide to his art. And also of the art, I think it's important to mention that he respected in, in his um, peers, people like Dan Flavin or John Chamberlain or Clays Oldenburg. Um, I, there was one nice interview with his daughter where she says something about how the move to Marfa was very difficult for her because she loved trees so much and missed the trees. Um and how Donald Judd would sort of gesture out to the landscape and say, if there were trees here, you wouldn't be able to see the land. You need to see the shape of the land. Mm, that's nice. Yeah. And, and so he had this sort of like holistic approach to his time there and the way that he wanted to make art there. Um, that sort of differs as I think, you know, Marfa becomes established as an artistic place. Um, people realize that they can capitalize off of that. And that, that is in some way very good for tourism. Um, right. So then we have Tim Crowley, who, like Judd, had an interesting vision for Marfa and its landscape. But unlike Judd's desire to sort of quietly lay a foundation for the art he found meaningful and sort of, you know, regenerative or, or prescient for the future of art, Tim Crowley came to Marfa with the idea that this foundation, which had been built by Judd, could come with a massive potential for very lucrative reimagining of the town. Um, and he moved there in 1997 with Lynn Good, uh, who was his, his wife at the time. And she was a figure in the art world in, in Houston. Uh, she was a gallery owner who was sort of recognized as having a strong sense for artists with potential to become big. Um, she discovered the art guys. Are you familiar with these, these men? So. Who are the art guys? Uh, they're like the the blue men group of <laughs> the art world i don't know oh um they they're drums just, they're two guys that like dress up in little outfits together and do sort of twee corny yeah <laughs> um, twee activities right uh yeah so he so crowley initially began buying ranching land without realizing how long it would take to build an original home in the area like you said the desert is often deceptive mm -hmm. you see this land of opportunity and don't realize that it's the desert because of those things that, yeah. that also sort of uh, prohibit it from being a place that is, is easy to live in the way that many other places are. It ensnares you and it's in its trap. Yeah. So he starts buying things uh, sort of closer to town, adobe houses, and he's buying land and buildings across town, retail buildings, etc. And it starts flipping them into trending sorts of businesses local theaters, bookstores, coffee shops, um, sort of the ongoing joke or like meme, I guess, where it's like, you know, when this shows up in your neighborhood, the rent's increasing and it's yeah. like, like a, yeah. Bespoke cappuccino <laughs> business. Uh, a, a man like Jared Leto's like 
you know, pouring, making sure your crema is just right. Meditating in the, in the back nowhere. room. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Crowley is said to have been very insistent in those early days on bringing in specific groups of people saying that he needs the right people to move to Marfa. Um, there were rumors of, you know, realtors working under Crowley to ensure that it's harder to move to Marfa for some people than it is for others. Yeah. I think he was quoted as saying like, if only the right 50 people moved here and then, right. then, then it would really be something. Yeah. And, and, um, eventually some of his New York friends move in sort of in the early two thousands as a result of tension in New York after nine 11, basically tension in New York. And then that causing like an interest in in being spread out in a more desolate place that felt safer and like it could more um, certainly harbor a sort of like nurturing culture. They wanted to build something new. Uh, One thing I'll say, and I think it's relevant to the way that Tim Crowley kind of um, began sort of building his his business empire. Uh, It's in the film Giant. and it predates him by several decades. But one girl says, Daddy says the only thing more important than money is land, um, which is, of course, an American pioneering attitude uh, that Mr. Crowley fits nicely into. Uh, he you know, was hell-bent on kind of having a dominating presence there. Also on the board of the Trinity Foundation was a... Uh, a woman named Virginia Lieberman and she was kind of from this you know oil dynasty family in Texas and with another sort of wealthy you know Texas heiress uh, Fairfax Adorn they set up um, the now famous contemporary arts baseball room Marfa which was really kind of began to change the landscape um you know, there was already an art presence, obviously, but this was kind of more flashy. It had attracted wealthier and um, glamorous, more glamorous uh, artists and, and figures working behind the scenes. Um, and, you know, this this is in the early 2000s. Uh, things started to really pick up in the Marfa that we're familiar with today started to take shape. Um, yeah, and not long after that, in 2005, um, is when the infamous Prada Marfa installation was built, um, on the road outside of town, um, and I think a lot of people associate it with, like, the 2012 era, but that's because it didn't really take off until people like Beyonce, as we mentioned, started taking... I don't know, like photo shoots in front in front of it, um, and it and it's kind of ironic because I think the artists were quoted as saying that it was supposed to be, you know, just something that naturally decayed over time, um, but then when you know it sort of became this like iconographic symbol for this for this mythological art enclave, uh, you know, yeah. Almost like sort of a, a symbol of persistence rather than decay because it's people were like, oh, it's actually so cool that there's a Prada in the middle of the desert. Yeah. A, n- a non-functioning one. We should be, we should make that clear. But yeah, no, it, it kind of now stands for the kind of per- like endurance of 
of the town as this of brand loyalty (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah yeah art art fades but brand loyalty is forever (laughs) yeah so this there for tim crowley and his associates there are a lot of different stops and challenges and whatnot along the way um but this general outlook and attitude i think tim crowley and his power and money sort of having this ability to control so much of marfa the real estate the business the commerce um this is sort of what laid the foundation for why marfa is sort of a controversial place now um especially within texas talking about it it's like there are then in one article i read it it said something about the newcomers getting angry with the newer comers you know it's like people who have lived there their whole lives and have generations of family who have lived there and who have been ranching a lot of them from mexico versus the newcomers that came in you know the 1990s or the 2000s versus the people who moved there in the 2010s and it just sort of feels like every person has this very specific idea of what marfa is to them and they want it to be frozen in that that period of time where they felt like because it was cool, they were cool. Or, you know, there there's this like thing that you want to join and you want to become and you want to embody the, what that thing means to you. But it's constantly changing around you. So you don't really understand where you're fitting in at that point. Yeah, which feels like the natural course of like scenes everywhere. But maybe because Marfa is under this like magnifying glass by nature of being uh kind of small and yeah um, boutique i guess it, it feels like you witness that th- those changes and those shifts um you know they're more they seem more severe or and they seem more um visible to people yeah and also just because it's um i mean there's so little space in the town itself in terms of in terms of real estate and just what is available for housing that sort of moving there in and of itself is a like level of status because you have to have some sort of financial security and ability to yeah. have um i guess like an idea of stability that's regenerative even in a community like that where basically you have to it seems like work remotely or own a business or a vintage store <laughs> yeah something like that um and yeah, I mean, obviously all of that sort of raised the prices and and sort of priced out a lot of the people who had been living there prior, made it a lot more difficult for people to just continue their lives with their family in the place that their family has lived for years or generations. Um, and now Marfa exists on this sort of like teetering edge of art and surveillance and power, and it's a very strange place. Yeah, and... While it does seem like too big to fail at this point, there's also like the precarity that comes with being a, a city in like a an arid space. Um, the challenges of like all sort of settlements and desert environments face like um, water shortages, food shortages. Um, you know that those are things that are going to affect it as a as it develops, you know, the hot, the nearest hospital is an Alpine. Like it's, it it's like, it, it's, there's a precariousness and I'm like, there's still a degree of like it being a dangerous place, even though it has like all these like perceived luxuries. Um, right. Yeah. Like you can, you can pretty much always get 
a designer like cashmere bag but you might not be able to get ice you know yeah well and there i think we read um i forget the details of this but there was like supposed to be like a music festival happening outside of town and that was by c3 presents which is a very well-known um austin i guess like promotional company that throws a lot of the music festivals or or maybe not festivals but the concerts there yeah Um, and it was like i don't think it it ended up happening it was supposed to be on like somebody's like ranch property outside of town because people were concerned that like the grocery store shelves would be wiped out and that like one cigarette could like cause a huge fire Mm -hmm. um you know that sort of like on that like scale um and you know those those are valid concerns considering the resources the community have yeah and it it sort of becomes this interesting cycle where i remember uh in response to that one of the women from new york i think virginia wrote a like response to someone who's criticizing uh the desire to hold that festival and there was sort of this back and forth between like well you know what's one weekend of increased traffic to marfa when we need it you know the we run off of tourism uh it would be helpful for the city but then it's kind of unclear as to how much of that would really go to the city maybe they would go to private businesses and then it would make it more difficult for the people who actually live there to exist um yeah i don't know i mean i I think that every town sort of relies on something and when it becomes so sort of outsourced to other people or people who have a much different idea of what the town should be um it's hard to balance all of those those separate interests and i think that when you go to marfa now it certainly feels very visible um yeah just the way that you interact with people and you know if you go too far west you have to come back and and check in through border patrol and they have like huge dogs and m4 carbines and it all feels very intense and i think that's part of the deceptive nature too is that uh people talk about marfa specifically as you know this this place of freedom and liberation but it's very surveilled there's a huge police presence um there's a the the blimp i find the blimp so interesting (laughs) i find i mean blimps are such a strange and sort of generally outdated yeah it feels like a cartoon spy villain way of um conducting business to surveil through yeah exactly exactly I, i there's no one in the blimp but i do imagine whenever i see a blimp i do imagine like one guy at the very pinpoint of it with like a pointy mustache and a top hat or something yeah yeah so the blimp is the uh border patrol blimp which is an aerostat um that sort of monitors like low-flying uh planes mostly but it it can also monitor trucks and, and cars going in and out over the border um i remember when i was in marfa it was like a, a cloudy day and i saw it in the distance and it looked like just a strange cloud or just a regular plane or something and it really confused me and then i asked someone about it and they told me that it was the the blimp and (laughs) they basically said um if you can see it it can see you which there's an idea with surveillance sort of like a patriot act idea where it's like well if you're not doing anything why would you be worried 
Yeah. But having like a literal camera in the sky, it just, it's, it's such a strange feeling. Um, yeah. Well, especially in a place that's supposed to, you know, be this symbol for neutrality and non-referentiality. And then you're the, 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 the nature of the natural environment is then disturbed by this you know you're you're not actually like you know getting away from anything that you no you'll (laughs) never be free you're like fleeing the big city but there's all these new layers of referentiality that's existing in this otherwise like desolate landscape that are just as much a part of your cultural and uh i guess your cultural life and your position as like a citizen of the united states the the surveillance and you know the brand the brands popping up the you know there's a i think last year a little bucky's in the style of prada martha appeared uh yeah you you know i think a marathon yeah it's just like it's kind of transforming the environment a little bit yeah i was reading um Deleuze's postscript on the societies of control where he's writing sort of against uh, Foucault's panopticism and the disciplinary society and how the disciplinary society is basically a thing of the past and we're living in a society of control now Um, and he said something that I found interesting and I sort of related internally and certainly misinterpreted um, in a way that made me feel like what Baudrillard and Anne Carson were saying about the the days repeating the year um, where he says in the disciplinary society, one was always starting again while in the societies of control, one is never finished with everything, with anything, mm-hmm. um, which I don't know. It, it kind of like lends itself to that idea of neutrality or just numbness against the concept of, of time and freedom. Um, and it's interesting because I, most of the places are still, very uh pleasant and friendly but marfa specifically seems to have i think like a a really strong presence of surveillance and control um that i i feel like even over the past couple of years i've noticed has increased a lot from when i first started going there um and it just yeah it, it just creates like a huge and strange sense of dissonance when you sort of remember where exactly you are and what exactly like you're you're living inside of yeah that's really interesting um did you read the thing i sent you about the ten thousand year old clock oh yeah i wanted to talk about that um so i guess jeff bezos has property in west texas Mm -hmm. and uh in deep in the mountains uh he's kind of i guess sponsoring a strange project that feels like a grasp at you know cor- corporate Im- corporate tech bro immortality or something he's doing he's like low-key doing eternal performance art yes yeah no exactly um on the website he's uh about the clock one thousand uh ten thousand year old clock dot net uh he writes in his letter we are building a 10,000-year clock. It's a special clock designed to be a symbol, an icon for long-term thinking. It's of monumental scale inside a mountain in West Texas. 
The father of the clock is Danny Hillis. He's been thinking about and working on the clock since 1989. He wanted to build a clock that ticks once a year, where the century hand advances once every hundred years, and the cuckoo comes out on the millennium. The vision was and still is to build a clock that will keep time in the next 10,000 years. And I guess he's been helping this guy. Uh, you know, and he says, as I see it, humans are now technologically advanced enough that we can create not only extraordinary wonders, but also civilization scale problems. We're likely to need more long-term thinking. So it's just <laughs> like this, you know, strange and vague projects that you take on when you have a surplus of money and, yeah. uh, you know, want to probably put your own brain in like a cryogenic chamber uh you know to preserve it for decades to come so you can you know there's some there's a, there's a connection to be made between the desert and one billionaires wanting a, doing weird stuff billionaires do like fucking burning man epstein's uh uh fornication ranch god which we the first time we recorded this i went on a long thing about jeffrey epstein and the connection between um art and power and politics and i think i'm not going to do that this time but i will <laughs> say that he is he is one of various examples of people um sort of like gallivanting off to the desert to do their nefarious and uh like medically very scary things yeah i think these guys just like read dune and like decided that the desert is is their playground for for domination yeah essentially uh, that that's a little bit of what's going on there is something the clock the clock thing is kind of interesting but yeah i in the website too sort of confirms that it won't be ready for a really long time (laughs) um which i find interesting that they're highly publicizing it before it's even complete yeah no there's something to be said about chipping away at something to no end uh, right with no foreseeable end um it's in the sierra diablo mountain range um yeah i guess we can kind of wrap it up and maybe open it up to questions some thought experiments yeah that's always fun do we want to talk about the minimalist cowboy more what are what are some traits what are some kind of cultural products that people might be familiar with that kind of have the you know a, a ring of truth uh, uh a, a ring of fidelity toward the marfa aesthetic or the marfa way of living um well i think uh donald judd was his, his specific objects was very prescient uh when it comes to contemporary art and sort of the proliferation of installation as being uh, so so prominent now. Um, one of the things that Donald Judd said in specific objects too is he's he's uh, they're like these large scale sort of sculptural pieces of art that he's creating, like the the big gray concrete blocks. Yeah. Um, and he's referring to the individual pieces, what some might call sculptures as objects, which I think is kind of interesting because it's like something to be interacted with for human use almost, or like environmental use rather than 
a sculpture which is something that you're sort of detached from um and I think that that idea has been sort of played into and commercialized a lot um we've talked about yeah like the the interactive artwork and the interactive museums and all of that which I hate of course like the 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 selfie factories the the instagrammable spots yes the instagrammable spots yeah we I yeah we could wax poetic about that for for hours but you have I mean yeah you have the creation in the other direction you have the creation of these places that uh kind of feel like they're you know they're operating from a different place they're they're making people act up and uh you know right I, the the town itself becomes sort of like an instagrammable spot and like a, a status symbol of some sort um and yeah i mean i think i think donald judd's art writing has been very important for the way that the art scene has progressed he was a very talented um art writer and i'm not a huge fan of a lot of his art itself but i do find the philosophy behind it to be uh quite interesting and very important for um artists to read i think because his sort of semantic approach um debating you know what things are and what they mean and and sort of the connection that you're meant to have with them as a viewer uh i think i think is very important especially with the way that, that marfa has sort of um gone off the rails with the, yeah. the like interactive maybe idea, taken on a more meow wolf santa fe right um, quality right. which um as as that quote mentioned judd would have found carnivalesque that sort of uh, yeah tourism or like like in austin how you have in texas you just like i don't know you turn a corner and everywhere you go there's some a big mural that says like oh i love the spurs so much i love tacos so much all of that that sprung from that one thing in austin that says i love you so much i don't know it's just like taking something that maybe has some sort of recognizable quality and plastering it wherever you can yeah the reproduction mimics like uh you know like scaling scaling products like it's just um it it has like scalable cachet um from like an instagram marketing perspective or something and then it takes off in this like garish and publicly visible way um yeah no i mean yeah we talk about you know some of our favorite you know there's a couple sandwich shops in town that that we've frequented that have kind of fallen trapped to the the instagrammable spot spectacle complete with neon signs and yeah uh, photo walls there are a couple sandwich spots that i will eat at because they're they're central and uh the the environment of being in a sandwich shop sometimes feels so necessary to me, but then I go in and I see the Instagrammable spots and uh, the lettuce is never fresh. And it always makes me feel so deeply angry that I have to think about like the entirety of culture and the simulation of it all. Um, yeah. It's really awful. Yeah. Well, it's interesting in talking about these like desolate towns, many of which like, you know, didn't, 
many of which didn't meet the same fate as Marfa is like being this place that had a renewed industry you know they're they're still kind of trying to seek you know monetary viability but like even when we went out to East Texas you know different environment but like Bay City where Forest Bess was from you know we encountered things like this and it's just like depressing yeah. it's depressing because you you understand what how they um crop crop up uh but yeah it just reminds you of like the the grasping preca- precarity and like maybe like the the unjust injustice of like which which little dusty old town gets to be lifted up and lionized by like the global elites or something um yeah yeah and it sort of i think that just sort of rings true the entire idea of simulation or like yeah you always feel like you get somewhere too late you know um and those things those like cultural markers i think that people have to sort of grasp onto uh like scraping the bottom of the barrel to make things interesting it sort of comes back to a conversation that i feel like camille and i have had together either just between the two of us or we've talked about on the podcast before too i think like specifically in the um train hopping episode we talked about Mm. how the train hoppers now are sort of uh like recreating or reimagining a community that was once so so vital and sort of operated on a less public scale um and i think that that's just something that we sort of come back to is the idea of a society or a place being cool and how to like perpetuate that in a way that feels um both relevant and authentic uh the idea of authenticity is a very loaded one too i think um yeah um i was gonna say something else but that reminded me of you know we were talking about this earlier the way that like women's fashion now feels like a schizophrenic like a demon whispering into your ear like like all these new terms that feel like referential to these different eras where like a scene or you know something cultural was actually happening um that now just feels like like caught like you're you're living like post that and you're like uh kind of costuming yourself in it in in a way that feels like distinct maybe like um I'm trying to think of some examples like well, the first thing I said when I saw Camille today was, "Do you know what gorp core is?" And, and then I like, asked her to explain old raisins me. and peanuts. Yeah, um, that is now an esoteric ass um, way of, way of being. Uh, uh, all you rock climbers out there, but yeah, um, y- like I don't know, like dark academia or like, uh, you know, like cowboy girly uh uh what's the one trad bimbo core i don't know there's like all kinds of like terms that feel like uh yeah like you're 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 referencing like an era of when or, or like something when it was cool but it's not like you've moved past it in some way i can't think of a good well yeah i think generally there's an idea that when you have to name something it it becomes uncool you know like when you have to put a name to it it sort of loses its magic right yeah and that feels like yeah everyone is constantly discovering things 
the same things, but in their individual experience, it feels cool. But then when you see someone doing the same thing, it's like, oh, that's played out, you know? Like I, I did that several months ago and now it's played out because someone else also put it to Instagram or, or Twitter or whatever. Yeah, and when things are so visible, like I guess like with social media and with the way like news coverage works now, like it feels increasingly difficult to like have something that feels like your your own or something that you discover. And so it kind of just makes like subculture feel like dead a little bit or right. like impossible to like get lift. Mm-hmm. Um and I think I think people are drawn to a place like Marfa, especially initially, because it was couched in all of this mythology and it did feel like they had to journey, they they had to physically journey there and discover it themselves. Um, but as, you know, it gained more visibility through, I guess, like Instagram and just like, as a, you know, more write-ups in like Vogue and Vanity Fair and all these places, like, it, it like, it, began to lose some of that but obviously it's still like a wildly successful project and it's still like a beautiful natural space with that people visit all the time and yeah I mean the the thing about talking about all of this is that I love West Texas so much I think it's such a special place and I like seeing people sort of choose that life over the fast-paced life of the city and if, if people have the means to do that honestly like I think I'm so jealous of that and that's like I don't know I I can't think of a better life than just having the ability to sort of remove yourself from all of this um and I just think I I I guess the times that I've been to West Texas I think I've only stayed in Marfa once um or twice but one one of them I was helping someone out and like watching their house from them uh but I think that the surrounding areas are very interesting too um and really the main thing is just getting out there and sort of allowing yourself to just exist in a space of quiet, not distracting yourself with music or places or, you know, people even just sort of existing under the sky, looking at the stars, reminding yourself, uh, how fantastic things can be. Um, I was actually reading a Scandinavian novel recently by this uh the the narrator it's dr class the narrator is a very pessimistic person he talks about actually how the stars are played out um (laughs) (laughs) which i thought was so funny and he talks about how you know ancient cultures used to use them to communicate and to determine specific things about their personality um but now the stars are just they're played out and they only exist to remind us our of our insignificance um down <laughs> which just I don't know just makes me laugh because I, I kind of feel like that I don't I love the stars but looking up at them sort of just I don't know how connected I feel to them aside from them just reminding me of uh yeah even in a place like West Texas where they're more visible and right clear. yeah oh uh, something <laughs> Yeah, we were talking about Jared Leto um, kind of being lost in the desert. And I feel like there's, like, a parallel of, like, wealthy artist, coastal elite types, like, moving in 
to marfa and like the same thing happening in like mexico city which like i don't i don't know a lot about that i've never been there but you hear people complain about it um and i know like like drake bell got canceled and moved to mexico city and rebranded himself as drake campagna which is bell in spanish and started like a a spanish music career and um crazy i i wonder if um if people move to marfa when they're canceled or if like cancel or like is that i mean it's like a liberal alcove where like you probably can't escape that sort of thing there um, yeah I don't know I, don't know. I, I wouldn't think so because it's still it's a very connected community and network so I think that you still have to be okay with existing on a public scale just in the way that people have always existed on a public scale in small towns where you just sort of know everyone and everyone knows you um, but, but is it the type of place where you can be like you know trade in your old face for, and you know your 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 face is new you know you're you're i don't know what i'm trying to say i don't think so Uh, you can't like i mean if you're going there as a person with what i'm thinking of right now is the fact that one time uh i went into a shop in marfa and before he greeted me or or said anything um to like recognize me as a person the guy running the shop who was like a young a young man um probably in his 30s he looked at me and he was like elijah woods here (laughs) (laughs) and uh i damn they got hobbits and marfa yeah i was like oh like here in the shop and he said no he's in town are you gonna try to find him that's strange and yeah i don't know i just said like no i don't care i mean that's cool that's nice i'm glad he's like i'm sure he has a very busy life i'm glad (laughs) he's uh decompressing but it is sort of like the people there are aware of the fact that there are stars there and people come to yeah. see stars in a way that's different than going to New York and hoping you see a yeah, star or something. You know, the, the stars above and the celebrities that pass through. Yeah, it's sort of a they're just like us moment <laughs> because they're they too can exist in this like neutral place that sort of strips them of their uh, their. Well, something interesting that Baudrillard says, too, is that it's useless to try to strip the desert of its cinematic qualities. Yeah. Um, And I think that that can sort of be transferred to people's, like, star qualities, too. You know, like, it doesn't doesn't necessarily neutralize you when you have played so much into the hyper-reality that culture generally takes. And and cinema sort of is that... um, even though it is that in a beautiful way it's yeah i don't know yeah you can't you can't escape the cult of personality you can't ex- escape persona as Baudrillard had said you can't escape the you know be you know the 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 crisis of being um, yeah, in the desert like you you can't bleed into the landscape like unfortunately you will st- you can't escape yourself right and that's that's something that i think as people we sort of relearn again and again you know wherever you go there you are although of course you end up becoming yourself um which is a biography on david foster wallace and not related but (laughs) but i did feel like i had to say that um yeah i don't know something to consider yeah um yeah and then i guess i guess like yeah there's like certain aesthetic archetypes that 
are associated with that type of West Texas enclave, uh, the big wide brimmed hat, the 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 well fitting Levi's vintage Levi's that are hundreds of dollars, the boots, the the sage burning. I hate seeing like a cow school in a minimalist home. I think if you're gonna put a cow school in a home, it should be like um like wood walls and very very uh crowded decor you know lots of schools in one room it sounds like one house that we're both familiar with what are you talking about kenny chesney's house oh (laughs) our friends our friend's old house was a wood a very wooded place with lots of schools and bones and it was a maximalist school boneyard yeah absolutely i love that but i don't like the whole because it feels like i think i don't like fundamentally when things become statements uh and that's like part of the entire thing that we're talking about here when you know living as an artist or living as a hunter and gathering schools becomes like a statement of some sort of, Oh, this is subversive. Like I'm doing this because I moved to Marfa from New York and now Marfa starter pack. Yeah. Um, so tall <laughs> sage, sage, um, one cow school. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, precisely. I understand that. Yeah. I don't know. It's like, it looks fine to me, but then, it, yeah, it is so played out. And you see it, like, a lot of little coffee shops or places here and, and in the global marketplace kind of adopt this, you know, they, they, they adopt the Marfa vibe uh, in their interior space as if to uh, channel the essence or something. Do you think it's possible for culture to grow organically in such a like universally tethered age like like in modern times yeah um i mean it, like subculture like 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 artistic movements like yeah i think so i mean i, I think i guess what i'm talking about is the fact that so many so much of what we have is completely based in nostalgia um fashion is largely referential to things that have already happened um cinema is pretty much all remakes or sequels or you know ip yeah yeah um even like literature i don't know is sort of just all auto fictiony now which feels i guess sort of like a repeat of the past or just more of like a diaristic yeah well uh, i feel like autofiction has always has always existed but it does feel like uh yeah i see i see what you mean it feels like um there's a lack of like new ideas that are allowed to be proliferated in like a mainstream way yeah yeah like if a town if a small town were to rise now, why, what like sort of organic um, mm. culture would it have to have to, to get people interested in a large scale, you know? Like for like, for it to eventually develop like a robust downtown and for it to right. be like a new city. I, that's interesting. I mean, like I think an example, like 
they built Dubai in like yeah. 10 I mean I think it's possible to have like for like a new city to kind of develop um, as long as there's like open spaces but in terms of like how the the community operates and how like the culture proliferates like I don't know it feels like I mean invariably like the poor get pushed out and like it it's it's like a, a like a like a scrape of yeah. like it like part of it is scraped and you see that kind of happening I guess to some degree with Marfa um yeah I don't know I hope that I don't know I hope that like a midwest city blows up like just people... a new one yeah we need more new cities I like I'm I'm t- thinking about all the places I could move and I don't I'm not satisfied with the options yeah I think I think maybe yeah like a midwestern town could blow up and people would start I, I, I don't know that much about midwest culture but people would move there and have like sort of caricature but it's hard to imagine it being anything other than a place with a bunch of like breweries and like sports right. bars like what it, you know like everything feels like accelerated and so maybe like the the slow cultivation of culture and architecture that like defines like the world's great cities like maybe that can't you know we won't see that happen um i mean you maybe like wealthy people can like develop their own community and they can hire like the top urban planners and it can be like a right a beautiful metropolis but then it'd be like so expensive to live there yeah i mean i feel like a lot of yeah we see developments like that or, or talk of developments like that um maybe mars will have really cool new no I'm that not new going martian there. culture nope <laughs> nope it's scary that martian swag uh, yeah yeah i don't know hard to say but i think i think we can kind of wrap things up do you have anything else you wanted to add um the marfalites viewing areas nice because it's a bunch of people talking to each other and pointing at stuff and being like was that it (laughs) and everyone's whispering because there's an idea that if you talk loud you won't be able to see there's a sensory mix-up right when like when you're parking your car and you turn the volume all the way down yeah it's it well it's like a human instinct to keep certain things sacred maybe yeah compartmentalize your senses um, but yeah, I, I, when I went to the Marfa lights thing, I was looking at the lights and or I was like looking in the direction and then I saw someone was like, that's, you're seeing what the lights are. And I was kind of, kind of like, <laughs> no, there's no way that this is what has garnered so much, uh, you know, talk over the decades, but I don't know. It Who remains knows? a mystery. Aliens? As many great things do. Yeah. yeah maybe it's. The, all the blimps blimps in the sky orbs could be orbs yeah. could be orbs cool well that's that's all for me sounds yeah, good to me i hope you en- enjoyed the sprawling journey through the desert we'll be back soon with some uh other stuff. seasonal yeah fun <laughs> fun adventures Thank you for listening to Texas Overture. It is only, Have a beautiful day. It is only 
a blank space in my hallway on the wallway between the hangings of paintings of lonely it ain't lonely at all Night. Hard to look good. 